Section 10 of the Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Natural History, Volume 4, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 10, Book 17. The Natural History of the Cultivated Trees. Chapter 1. Trees which have been sold at enormous prices. We have described the trees which grow spontaneously on land and in the sea, and it now remains for us to speak of those which owe their formation, properly speaking, rather than birth to art and the inventive genius of man. Here, however, I cannot but express my surprise that after the state of penury in which man lived, as already described, in primitive times, holding the trees of the forest in common with the wild beasts, and disputing with them the possession of the fruits that fell, and with the fowls of the air, that of the fruits as they hung on the tree, luxury has now attached to them prices so enormous. The most famous instance, in my opinion, of this excess was that displayed by L. Crassus and Cnaeus Domitius, Ahenobarbus. Crassus was one of the most celebrated of the Roman orators. His house was remarkable for its magnificence, though in some measure surpassed even by that of Q. Catulus, also upon the Palatine Hill. The same Catulus, who in conjunction with C. Marius, defeated the Cimbri. But by far the finest house of all that period, it was universally acknowledged, was that of C. Aquilius, a Roman of equestrian rank, situate upon the Viminal Hill, a house indeed that conferred a greater degree of celebrity upon him than even his acquaintance with the civil law. This, however, did not prevent Crassus being reproached with the magnificence of his. Crassus and Domitius, members, both of them, of the most illustrious families, after holding the consulship, were appointed jointly to the censorship in the year from the building of the city in 662, a period of office that was fruitful in strife, the natural result of their dissimilarity of character. On one occasion, Cnaeus Domitius, naturally a man of hasty temper, and inflamed besides by a hatred that rivalry only tends to stimulate, gravely rebuked Crassus for living, and he a censor too, in a style of such magnificence, and in a house for which, as he said, he himself would be ready to pay down ten millions of sesterces. Crassus, a man who united to singular presence of mind great readiness of wit, made answer that, deducting six trees only, he would accept the offer, upon which Domitius replied, that upon those terms he would not give so much as a single denarius for the purchase. Well then, Domitius was the rejoinder of Crassus, which of the two is it that sets a bad example and deserves the reproof of the censorship? I who live like a plain man in a house that has come to me by inheritance, or you who estimate six trees at a value of ten millions of sesterces? These trees were of the lotus kind, and by the exuberance of their branches afforded a most delightful shade. Cecina Largus, one of the grandees of Rome and the owner of the house, used often to point them out to me in my younger days, and, as I have already made mention of the remarkable longevity of trees, I would here add 
that they were in existence down to the period when the emperor nero set fire to the city one hundred and eighty years after the time of crassus being still green and with all the freshness of youth upon them had not that prince thought fit to hasten the death of the very trees even let no one however imagine that the house of crassus was of no value in other respects or that from the rebuke of domitius there was nothing about it worthy of remark with the exception of these trees there were to be seen erected in the atrium four columns of marble from mount hymettus which in his aedile ship he had offered to be brought over for the decoration of the stage and this at a time too when no public buildings even as yet possessed any pillars made of that material of such recent date is the luxury and opulence which we now enjoy and so much greater was the value which in those days trees were supposed to confer upon a property a pretty good proof of which was the fact that domitius even with all his enmity would not keep to the offer he had made if the trees were not to be included in the bargain the trees have furnished surnames also to the ancients such as for instance as that of fronditius to the warrior who swam across the volturnus with a wreath of leaves on his head and distinguished himself by his famous exploits in the war against hannibal and that of stolo to the lycimian family such being the name given by us to the useless suckers that shoot from trees the best method of clearing away these shoots was discovered by the first stolo and hence his name the ancient laws also took the trees under their protection and by the twelve tables it was enacted that he who should wrongly cut down trees belonging to another person should pay twenty-five asses for each it is possible then to imagine that they who estimate the fruit trees at so low a rate as this could ever have supposed that so exorbitant a value would be put upon the lotus as that which i have just mentioned and no less marvellous too are the changes that have taken place in the value of fruit for at the present day we find the fruit alone of many of the trees in the suburbs valued at no less a sum than two thousand sesterces the profits derived from a single tree thus being more than those of a whole estate in former times it was from motives of gain that the grafting of trees and the propagation thereby of a spurious offspring was first devised so that the growth of the fruits even might be a thing interdicted to the poor we shall therefore now proceed to state in that way it is that such vast revenues are derived from these trees and with that object shall set forth the true and most approved methods of cultivation not taking any notice of the more common methods or those which we find generally adapted but considering only those points of doubt and uncertainty in relation to which practical men are most apt to find themselves at a loss while at the same time to affect any scrupulous exactness in cases where there is no necessity for it which will be no part of our purpose in the first place however we will consider in a general point of view those influences of soil as well as weather which are exercised upon all the trees in common chapter two the influence of weather upon the trees what is the proper situation for the vine trees are fond of a site more particularly that faces the northeast the breezes rendering their foliage more thick and exuberant and imparting additional solidity to the wood this is a point however upon which most people are very greatly deceived thus in vineyards for instance 
the props ought not to be placed in such a position as to shelter the stems from the wind in that quarter, it being only against the northern blast that this precaution should be taken. Nay, even more than this, if the cold weather only comes on in due season, it contributes very materially to the strengthening of the trees and promotes the process of germination, while on the other hand, if at that period the southern breezes should caress them, they will grow weak and languid, and more particularly so if the blossom is just coming on. If rainy weather too should happen to follow close upon blossoming, the total destruction of the fruit is a necessary result. Indeed, if the weather should be only cloudy or south winds happen to prevail, it is quite sufficient to ensure the loss of the fruit in the almond and the pear. Rains, if prevalent about the rising of the Virgiliae, are most injurious to the vine and the olive, as it is at that season that germination is commencing with them. Indeed, this is a most critical four days for the olive, being the period at which the south wind, as we have already stated, brings on its dark and lowering clouds. The cereals, too, ripen more unfavourably when south winds prevail, though at the same time it proceeds with greater rapidity. All cold, too, is injurious to vegetation, which comes with the northern winds, or out of the proper season. It is most advantageous to all plants for northeast winds to prevail throughout the winter. In this season, too, showers are very necessary, and the reason is self-evident. The trees, being exhausted by the fruit they have borne, and weakened by the loss of their leaves, are of course famished and hungry, and it is the showers that constitute their ailment. Experience has led us to believe that there is nothing more detrimental than a warm winter, for it allows the trees, the moment they have parted with their fruit, to conceive again, or in other words to germinate, and they exhaust themselves by blossoming afresh. And what is even worse than this, should there be several years of such weather in succession, even the trees themselves will die, for there can be little doubt that the effort must of necessity be injurious when they put forth their strength and are at the same time deprived of their natural sustenance. The poet then, who has said that serene winters are to be desired, certainly did not express those wishes in favour of the trees, and no more does rain, if prevalent at the summer solstice, conduce to the benefit of the wine, while at the same time to say that a dusty winter produces a luxuriant harvest is certainly the mistake of a too fertile imagination. It is a thing greatly to be wished to, both in behalf of the trees as well as the cereals, that the snow should lie for a considerable time upon the ground, the reason being that they check the escape of the spirit of the earth by evaporation and tend to throw it back again upon the roots of the plants, adding greatly to their strength thereby. And not only this, but they afford a gradual supply of moisture as well, that is both pure and of remarkable lightness, from the fact that snow is only the foam of the waters of heaven. Hence it is that the moisture of snow does not drench and engulf everything all at once, but gradually trickles downwards, in proportion to the thirst of the plant, nurturing it as though from the breast, instead of producing an inundation. The earth too ferments under this influence and becomes filled with her own emanations, not exhausted by the seeds in her bosom, swollen as they are with milk, she smiles in the warm and balmy hours when the time comes for opening it. It is in this way, more particularly, that corn fattens apace, except indeed in those climates in which the atmosphere is always warm. Egypt, for example. 
for there the continuance of the same temperature and the force of habit are productive of the same effects as the modifications of temperature in other countries. At the same time, it is equally necessary in every climate that there should be no noxious influence in existence. Thus, for instance, in the greater part of the world, that precocious germination which has been encouraged by the indulgent temperature of the weather is sure to be nipped by the intense colds that ensue. Hence it is that late winters are so injurious, and such they prove to the trees of the forest even. Indeed, these last are more particularly exposed to the ill effects of a late winter, oppressed as they are by the density of their foliage, and human agency being unable to succour them, for it would be quite impossible to cover the more tender forest trees with wisps of straw. Rains then are favourable to vegetation, first of all during the winter season, and next just previously to germination, the third period for them being that of the formation of the fruit, though not immediately, and only, in fact, when the produce of the tree shows itself strong and healthy. Those trees which are the slowest in bringing their fruits to maturity, and require a more prolonged supply of nutriment, receive benefit also from late rains, such as the vine, the olive, and the pomegranate, for instance. These rains, however, are required at different seasons by the different trees, some of them coming to maturity at one period, and some at another. Hence it is that we see the very same rain productive of injury to some trees and beneficial to others, even when they are of the very same species, as in the pear for instance, for the winter pear stands in need of rain at one period, and the early pear at another, though at the same time they, all of them, require it in equal degree. Winter precedes the period of germination, and it is this fact that makes the northeast wind more beneficial than the south and renders the parts that lie in the interior preferable to those near the coast, the former being generally the coldest, mountainous districts better than level ones, and rain at night better than showers in the day. Vegetation too receives a greater degree of benefit from the water when the sun does not immediately soak it up. Connected too with this subject is the question of the best situation for planting vines, and the trees which support them. Virgil condemns a western aspect, while there are some persons, again, who prefer it to an easterly one. I find, however, that most authors approve of the South, though I do not think that any abstract precepts can be given in relation to the point. The more careful attention on the part of the cultivator ought to be paid to the nature of the soil, the character of the locality, and the respective influences of climate. The method of giving to the vine a southern aspect as practised in Africa and blank is injurious to the tree as well as unhealthy for the cultivator from the very circumstance that the country itself lies under a southern meridian hence it is that he who selects for his plants there a western or a northerly aspect will combine on the most advantageous terms of the benefit of soil with those of climate when virgil condemns a western aspect there can be no doubt that he includes in his censure a northern aspect as well and yet in Cisalpine Italy, where most of the vineyards have an aspect to the north, it has been found by experience that there are none that are more prolific. The winds are also a very important consideration. In the provinces of Gallia, Narbonensis, and in Liguria, and part of Etruria, it is considered a proof of great want of skill to plant the vine on a site that lies in the teeth of the wind, Circius 
while on the other hand it is a mark of prudence to catch its breezes in an oblique direction it is this wind in fact that modifies the heat in those countries though at the same time it is usually so violent as to sweep away the roofs of the houses there are some persons who employ a method of making the question of weather dependent upon the nature of the soil thus in the case of a vineyard for instance in a dry locality they give it an eastern or a northern aspect but where it is planted on a humid site it is made to face the south from the varieties of the wine also they borrow various modifications in reference to site taking care to plant the early vine in a cold locality in order that the fruit may ripen before the frosts come on while such fruit trees and vines as have an antipathy to dews are exposed to the east that the sun may carry off their humidity at the earliest moment on the other hand such as manifest a partiality to dews are planted with a western or even a northern aspect to give them an opportunity of enjoying them all the longer others again borrowing their notions pretty nearly from nature have recommended that vines and trees should be planted facing the northeast indeed democritus is of opinion that by doing so the fruit will be all the more odoriferous we have already spoken in the second book of the points of the northeast and other winds and shall have occasion in the succeeding one to make mention of several more of the heavenly phenomena in the meantime however we may observe that it would appear to be a manifest proof of the salubrity of a northeast site that the leaves are always the first to fall in the trees that have an aspect towards the south a similar reason exists too in the maritime districts in certain localities the sea breezes are detrimental though in most they are nutritious for some plants again it is pleasant to behold the sea at a distance while at the same time they will gain nothing by approaching closer to its saline exhalations the same too is the influence exercised by rivers and lakes they will either scorch the vegetation by the fogs they emit or else modify by their coolness the excess of heat we have already mentioned the plants that thrive in the shade and in the cold even but in all these matters experience will be found the best of guides chapter three what soils are to be considered the best next after the influences of the heavens we have to treat of those of the earth a task that is in no way more easy than the previous one it is but rarely that the same soil is found suited to trees as well as corn indeed the black earth which prevails in campania is not everywhere found suited to the mine nor yet that which emits a light exhalation or the red soil that has been so highly praised by many the cretaceous earth that is found in the territory of alba pompeia and an argillaceous soil are preferred to all others for the wine although too they are remarkably rich a quality that is generally looked upon as not suited to that plant on the other hand again the white sand of the district of ticinum the black sand of many other places and the red sand as well even though mixed with a rich earth will prove unproductive the very signs also from which we form our judgment are often very deceptive a soil that is adorned with tall and graceful trees is not always a favourable one except of course for those trees what tree in fact is there that is taller than the fir and yet what other plant could possibly exist in the same spot nor ought we always to look upon verdant pastures as so many proofs of richness of soil for what is there that enjoys a greater renown than the pastures of germany and yet they consist of nothing but a very thin layer of turf 
with sand immediately beneath. Nor yet is the soil which produces herbage of large growth always to be looked upon as humid. No, by Hercules, no more than a soil is to be looked upon as unctuous and rich, which adheres to the fingers, a thing that is proved in the case of the argillaceous earths. The earth when thrown back into the hole from which it has just been dug will never fill it, so that it is quite impossible by that method to form any opinion as to its density or thinness. It is the fact, too, that every soil without exception will cover iron with rust, nor yet can we determine the heaviness or lightness of soils in relation to any fixed and ascertained weight, for what are we to understand as a standard weight of earth? A soil, too, that is formed from the alluvion of rivers is not always to be recommended, for there are some crops that decay all the sooner in a watery soil. Indeed, those soils, even of this description, which are highly esteemed, are never found to be long good for any kind of vegetation but the willow. Among other proofs of the goodness of soil is the comparative thickness of the stem and corn. In Laborium, a famous champagne country of Campania, the stock is of such remarkable thickness that it may be used even to supply the place of wood, and yet this very soil, from the difficulty that is everywhere experienced in cultivating it, and the labour required in working it, may be almost said to give the husbandman more trouble by its good qualities than it could possibly have done by the reason of any defects. The soil, too, that is generally known as charcoal earth, appears susceptible of being improved by being planted with a poor meagre vine, and tufa, which is naturally rough and friable, we find recommended by some authors. Virgil, too, does not condemn for the vine a soil which produces fern, while a salted earth is thought to be much better entrusted with the growth of vegetation than any other, from the fact of its being comparatively safe from noxious insects breeding there. Declivities, too, are far from unproductive. If a person only knows how to dig them properly, and it is not all champagne spots that are less accessible to the sun and wind than is necessary for their benefit, we have already alluded to the fact that there are certain vines which find nutriment in hoar-frosts and fogs. In every subject there are certain deep and recondite secrets, which is left to the intelligence of each to penetrate. Do we not, for instance, find in the fact that soils which have long offered opportunities for a sound judgment, being formed on their quantities, have become totally altered? In the vicinity of Larissa in Thessaly, a lake was drained, and the consequence was that the district became much colder, and the olive trees which had formerly borne fruit now ceased to bear. When a channel was cut from Hebrus near the town of Anus, the place was sensible of its nearer approach, in finding its vines frost-bitten, a thing that had never happened before. In the vicinity, too, of Philippi, the country having been drained for cultivation, the nature of the climate became entirely altered. In the territory of Syracuse, a husbandman who was a stranger to the place cleared the soil of all the stones, and the consequence was that he lost his crops from the accumulation of mud, so that at last he was obliged to carry the stones back again. In Syria, again, the plowshare which they use is narrow, and the furrows are but very superficial, there being a rock beneath the soil that in summer scorches up the seeds. Then, too, the effects of excessive cold and heat in various places are similar. Thus, for instance, Thrace is fruitful in corn, by reason of the cold, while Africa and Egypt are so in consequence of the heat that prevails there. At Chalcia, an island belonging to the Rhodians, 
there is a certain place which is so remarkably fertile that after reaping the barley that has been sown at the ordinary time and gathering it in they immediately sow a fresh crop and reap it at the same time as the other corn a gravelly soil is found best suited for the olive in the district of venafrum while one of extreme richness is required for it in the Baetica. The wines of Pusinum are ripened upon a rock, and the wines of Secubum are moistened by the waters of the Pomptine marshes that have been detected by human experience in the various soils. Caesar Vopiscus, when pleading a cause before the censors, said that the fields of Rosia are the very marrow of Italy, and that a stake left in the ground there one day would be found covered by the grass the next the soil however is only esteemed there for the purpose of pasturage still however nature has willed that we should not remain uninstructed and has made full admission as to existing defects in the soil even in cases where she has failed to give us equal information as to its good qualities we shall begin therefore by speaking of the defects that are found in various soils if it is the wish of a person to test whether a soil is bitter or whether it is thin and meagre the fact may be easily ascertained from the presence of black and undergrown herbs if again the herbage shoots up dry and stunted it shows that the soil is cold and if sad and languid that it is moist and slimy the eye too is able to judge whether it is a red earth or whether it is argillaceous both of them extremely difficult to work and apt to load the harrow or ploughshare with enormous clods though at the same time it should be borne in mind that the soil which entails the greatest amount of labour is not always productive of the smallest amount of profit so too on the other hand the eye can distinguish a soil that is mixed with ashes or with white sand while earth that is sterile and dense may be easily detected by its peculiar hardness at even a single stroke of the mattock Cato briefly and in his peculiar manner characterizes the defects that exist in the various soils. Take care, he says, where the earth is rotten, not to shake it either with carts or by driving cattle over it. Now what are we to suppose that this term rotten means, as applied to a soil, about which he is so vastly apprehensive as to almost forbid our setting foot upon it? Let us only form a comparison by thinking what it is that constitutes rottenness in wood and we shall find that the faults which are held by him in such aversion are the being arid full of holes rough white mouldy worm-eaten in fact just like pumice-stone and thus has cato said more in a single word than we could have possibly found means to express in a description however long indeed if we could find means of expressing the various defects that exist in soils we should find that there are some of them that are old not with age for age cannot be concerned in relation to the earth but of their own nature and are hence unfruitful and powerless for every purpose from the first the same writer too considers that at the very best of soils which situate at the foot of a declivity runs out into a champagne country taking a southward direction such in fact being the aspect of the whole of italy he says also that the earth generally known as black earth is of a tender nature and is consequently the most easily worked and the best for cereals if we only appreciate with due care the signification of this word tender we shall find that it expresses its intended meaning remarkably well and that in this world is comprised every quality that is desirable for the purposes of cultivation 
in a tender soil we shall find fertility combined with moderation a softness and a pliancy easily adapted to cultivation and an equal absence of humidity and of dryness earth of this nature will shine again after the ploughshare has passed through it just as homer that great fountainhead of all genius has described it sculptured by the divinity upon the arms of achilles adding to a thing that is truly marvellous that it was of a blackish hue though gold was the material in which it was wrought this too is that kind of earth which when newly turned up attracts the ravenous birds that follow the ploughshare the ravens even going so far as to peck at the heels of the ploughman we may in this place appropriately make mention of an opinion that has to be pronounced by an italian writer also with reference to a matter of luxury cicero that other luminary of literature has made the following remark those unguents which have a taste of earth are better says he than those which smack of saffron it seems to him more to the purpose to express himself by the word taste than smell and such is a fact no doubt that soil is the best which has the flavour of a perfume if the question should be put to us what is this order of the earth that is held in such estimation our answer is that it is the same that is often to be recognised at the moment of sunset without the necessity even of turning up the ground at the spots where the extremities of the rainbow have been observed to meet the earth as also when our long continued drought the rain has soaked the ground then it is that the earth exhales this divine odour that is so peculiarly its own and to which imparted to it by the sun there is no perfume however sweet that can possibly be compared it is this odour that the earth when turned up ought to emit and which when once found can never deceive a person and this will be found the best criterion for judging of the quality of the soil such too is the odour that is usually perceived on land newly cleared when an ancient forest has been just cut down its excellence is a thing that is universally admitted for the culture of the cereals too the same land is generally looked upon as the more improved the oftener it has been allowed to rest from cultivation a thing that is not the case with vineyards for which reason all the greater care is required in the selection of their site if we would not have the opinions of those to appear well founded who entertain the notion that the soil of italy is already worn out in other kinds of soil the work of cultivation depends entirely upon the weather as for instance in those which cannot be ploughed just after rain because the natural exuberance of the earth renders it viscous and cloggy on the other hand in byzantium a district of africa and a champagne country of such singular fertility as to render grain one hundred and fifty-fold the soil is such that in time of drought not even bulls are able to plough it while on other occasions just after a shower of rain one poor ass with an old woman to guide it is quite sufficient as ourselves we have witnessed to do the ploughing but as to amending one soil by the agency of another as some persons recommend by throwing rich earth over one that is poor and thin or by laying a soaking light soil over one that is humid and unctuous it is a labour of perfect madness what can a man possibly hope for who cultivates such a soil as this chapter four the eight kinds of earth boasted of by the gauls and greeks there is another method which has been invented both in gaul and britain 
of enriching earth by the agency of itself, being blank, and that kind known as marl. This soil is looked upon as containing a greater amount of fecundating principles, and acts as a fat in relation to the earth, just as we find glands existing in the body, which are formed by a condensation of the fatty particles into so many kernels. This mode of proceeding, too, has not been overlooked by the Greeks. Indeed, what subject is there that they have not touched upon? They call by the name of Leucargillon, white argillaceous earth which is used in the territory of Megara, but only where the soil is of a moist, cold nature. It is only right that I should employ some degree of care and exactness in treating of this marl, which tends so greatly to enrich the soil of the Gallic provinces and the British islands. There were formerly but two varieties known, but more recently, with the progress of agricultural knowledge, several others have begun to be employed, there being in fact the white, the red, the columbine, the argillaceous, tufaceous, and the sandy marls. It has also one of these two peculiarities. It is either rough or greasy to the touch, the proper mode of testing it being by the hand. Its uses, too, are of a twofold nature. It is employed for the production of the cereals only, or else for the enrichment of pasture land as well. The tufaceous kind is nutrimental to grain, and so is the white. If found in the vicinity of springs, it is fertile to an immeasurable extent. But if it is rough to the touch when laid upon the land in too large a quantity, it is apt to burn up the soil. The next kind is a red marl known as a conumarga, consisting of stones mingled with a thin sandy earth. These stones are broken upon the land itself, and it is with considerable difficulty during the earlier years that the stalk of the corn is cut, in consequence of the presence of these stones. However, as it is remarkably light, it only costs for carriage one half of the outlay required in using the other varieties. It is laid but very thinly on the surface, and it is generally thought that it is mixed with salt. Both of these varieties, when once laid on the land, will fertilize it for fifty years, whether for grain or for hay. Of the marls that are found to be of an unctuous nature, the best is the white. There are several varieties of it, the most pungent and biting being the one already mentioned. Another kind is the white chalk that is used for cleaning silver. It is taken from a considerable depth in the ground, the pits being sunk, in most instances, as much as one hundred feet. These pits are narrow at the mouth, but the shafts enlarge very considerably in the interior, as is the case in mines. It is in Britain more particularly that this chalk is employed. The good effects of it are found to last full eighty years, and there is no instance known of an agriculturist laying it twice on the same land during his life. A third variety of white marl is known as glisomarga. It consists of fuller's chalk, mixed with an unctuous earth, and is better for promoting the growth of hay than grain. So much so, in fact, that between harvest and the ensuing seed time, there is cut a most abundant crop of grass. While the corn is growing, however, it will allow no other plant to grow there. Its effects will last so long as thirty years, but if laid too thickly on the ground, it is apt to choke up the soil, just as if it had been covered with signine cement. The Gauls give to the columbine marl in their language the name of Egilopala. It is taken up in solid blocks like stone, 
after which it is so loosened by the action of sun and frost as to split into laminae of extreme thinness. This kind is equally beneficial for grass and grain. The sandy marl is employed if there is no other at hand, and on moist slimy soils, even when other kinds can be procured. The ubi are the only people that we know of who, having an extremely fertile soil to cultivate, employ methods of enriching it. Wherever the land may happen to be, they dig to a depth of three feet, and taking up the earth, cover the soil with it in other places a foot in thickness. This method, however, to be beneficial, requires to be renewed at the end of every ten years. The Adui and the Pictonis have rendered their lands remarkably fertile by the aid of limestone, which is also found to be particularly beneficial to the olive and the vine. Every marl, however, requires to be laid on the land immediately after ploughing, in order that the soil may at once imbibe its properties, while at the same time it requires a little manure as well, as it is apt at first to be of too acrid a nature, at least where it is not pasture land that it is laid upon, in addition to which, by its very freshness, it may possibly injure the soil, whatever the nature of it may be. So much so indeed that the land is never fertile the first year after it has been employed. It is a matter of consideration also for what kind of soil the marl is required. If the soil is moist, a dry marl is best suited for it, and if dry, a rich, unctuous marl. If, on the other hand, the land is of a medium quality, chalk or columbine marl is the best suited for it. End of section 10. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.